The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. We pick up where we left off last week. If you would look with me, verse 12, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That was last week. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, and I rejoice with you all likewise. You also should be glad and rejoice with me. Six points this morning. If you're a note taker, here they are. We see a serious command. A serious command. A sure case. A sinful context. A shining community. A suffering community commitment, and a secure contentment. A serious command, a sure case, a sinful context, a shining community, a suffering commitment, and a secure contentment. This is one of the first verses I memorized. It's probably one of the Worse that I keep, do all things without grumbling. Paul picks up and continues in this train of thought that he's been in where we are to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we do that by considering Jesus. And he breaks into this Christ Him, where we consider the humility of Jesus and the subsequent exaltation of Jesus. And so therefore, we should humble ourselves. We should consider others as more important than ourselves. And we should obey Christ. We should follow in His example of obedience. And we should be obedient to God. And we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's the immediate context. And so now Paul sort of continues how we are to live as good citizens of heaven and how we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he he does it with really one command, one imperative to, to follow this up. And it is a serious command. Here's what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do what? 
do all things. Let me ask you a question. What does that include? I'm pretty sure that includes everything. And everything you do, Paul says. Here's an important place for us to stop just for a second to be reminded of something. Paul's talking about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it affects all the things you do. Christianity, your salvation, your faith is not segregated into the spiritual sides of your life and void in the other parts of your life. There's there's no part of your life that is only spiritual. There's no part of your life that salvation only affects. It is to have an impact in every single part of our life. In everything we do, we work out our salvation. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Because working out your salvation in every part of your life is a difficult task. Paul says, do it without grumbling or complaining. This word grumbling here, it's, a, it's, a, it's really an onomatopoeia. The, 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 the way you pronounce it, it just kind of... I mean, that's literally what it sounds like um, when you pronounce it in, 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 the, in the Greek or in the Hebrew. It's just, it's just grumbling. It's, it's murmuring. It's, it's discontent. To, to grumble out about something is to express a, a dissatisfaction in something. I, I, don't, I don't have to tell you what grumbling means. You've all been guilty of it, and you've all received it from your spouse or from your children. It's, it's just um, a, a murmuring, discontent, dissatisfaction about the state of things. Um, without grumbling or disputing, disputing, this is, this is the same word for uh, complaining. It is um, the, the idea of, of criticizing. So in everything you do, no matter what, you do it without grumbling, murmuring in dissatisfaction and discontent and do it without complaining or criticizing. Uh, MacArthur makes a helpful distinction between these two. And, and it, was, it, was, it was new for me. Because um, I, I thought, man, this is sort of Paul, you know, in classic Paul, just saying the same thing three different ways. Um, but there really is a distinction to be made between complaining and disputing or um, grumbling and, and complaining. And it is that the, the grumbling aspect is, is emotional. It's your emotions. Don't let your emotions get away from you to where you're emotionally um, discontent and grumbling. And then the disputing has to do with arguing or your intellect to, to, to argue your case against something. So it's both your emotion and your intellect. Don't be guilty of grumbling or complaining. 
Now, I said this is a serious command. What makes this such a big deal? Why is this something I would call a, a serious command? Is it grumbling or complaining? Isn't that just annoying? Like, isn't it just an annoyance? What makes it a serious command? And make no mistake, it is a serious command. Well, this isn't just annoying to God. But this kind of attitude, an attitude of of grumbling and disputing, this kind of attitude is a big deal to God because it's a symptom of an even greater problem. I want to show you this in the Old Testament in a number of places. Psalm 106 is sort of the, the Cliff Notes version of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, some of Joshua. This is the Cliff Notes. This, this is the psalmist sort of breaking down all that, that happened. This is what the the psalmist says. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. As the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them were left. Then they believed his words, and they sang his praise. But soon they forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness, and they put God to test in the desert. And he gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan and covered the the company of Abraham, fire also broke out in their company. The fire burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. That's what we, we just read, what Jacob read for us. But then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. Look at verse 25. They murmured. That's the same word for grumbling. They grumbled. They murmured in their tents. 
and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. It would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. All of these evils the, the Israelites had, had committed in, in the Exodus, in their time in the wilderness. I mean, can you imagine God visiting on his holy mountain to bring his law? Meanwhile, his chosen people fashioned idols and worshiped them at his feet. Yet God relents. God relents and God relents until you get to verse 25 and they murmured and God says you're not coming in no promised land for you that sounds like a pretty serious deal murmuring grumbling you see this over and over You see it regularly in Numbers. Give you a couple of examples, just two this morning. Numbers 13, starting in verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it. This is the promised land, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land, that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. This is... This is grumbling. This is complaining. This is disputing. This is arguing. God has said they would take it, and they say, we can't take it. Numbers 14, verse 1, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept at night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Same word. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. They grumbled. It's interesting. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. But their grumbling was not against Moses and Aaron, was it? Who was their grumbling against? It was against God. Why would God do this? Why would God bring us here? Why does God take grumbling and complaining so serious? The reason is because when we grumble and complain, the reality is we are grumbling and complaining against Him. Against him. Uh, Numbers 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? Me. I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. 
Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. For your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And wouldn't it be better if we died in the wilderness? God says, okay, all right. That's what you want. That's what you got. Because they've grumbled against him. They've grumbled against him. This is how serious God takes grumbling and complaining. I say this to to show you that having an attitude that consistently grumbles and complains is not just annoying. It's sin. Now make no mistake, it is annoying. Y'all like hanging out with people like that? But it's not just annoying. It's sin. Why? Because grumbling and complaining is a failure to trust and submit to God. To grumble and to complain is a failure to trust and to submit to God. Now you might say, Jason... But they, they were grumbling about their circumstances in the wilderness. Well, we don't have those circumstances in the wilderness. Totally agree with you there. Though it does feel like we live in the wilderness. But what does Paul say? Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Because grumbling and complaining is a failure to trust and to submit to God. It is a rejection of His goodness and sovereignty. When we grumble and complain, it is a rejection of the goodness of God and His sovereign control in our life. What we are saying is, God, You are either not good and in control, or... You are in control, but not good. Right? Either, God, you maybe are a good God, but you're not in control. That's why my life is not good. And so I grumble about it. Or, you are in control, but my life is not good. So therefore, you are not good, and I can grumble about it. But when we do all things without grumbling or complaining, We're showing that we have faith in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. And we are willing to submit to His sovereignty and trust His goodness no matter the circumstances. Our grumbling, even if it's directed at another, is ultimately against God. That's what we see over and over again in the Exodus. They're grumbling directed towards Moses, but against God. Again, Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled, same word, with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirst stood there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. 
Here's what's interesting. You see, these, these, these allusions to the Israelites in the wilderness and their grumbling and their complaining and the judgment of God on them because of it, that's not just some you know, ancient story. But the purpose of that is for our instruction now. We know that because that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. This is a serious command. It's a command that carries weight. It's a command of importance. It's a command where we can look back and see examples of those who who did not do this and what happened in their life. And then be encouraged to not live that way. It's a serious command because if we live in a way that trusts God, and isn't characterized by mistrust and discontent, then we are to the world a sure case. So there's the the command, do all things without grumbling or complaining. And then there's a string of, of reasons. And the first one is because if our grumbling and complaining comes from a discontented, distrusting heart of God, which it does, then that means when we do all things without grumbling or complaining, then we are showing the world a trust in God. We are a sure case for God before the world. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. That you may be, right? This is this this causal language. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. That you may be, here's the reason, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. A sure case. The context here and Paul's point is not that you are made blameless and innocent without blemish before God because you did not grumble or complain. That's not, what, that's not the point. It's important we make this distinction. Paul is not saying that if you do all things without grumbling or complaining, then you will be blameless and innocent without a blemish before God. If that was true then salvation is a works, right? And we know salvation 
is all of grace. So who are we, as we live this way, who are we blameless and innocent and without blemish before? We're blameless and innocent and out without blemish before the sinful context that we live in. That's Paul's point. That our doing all things without grumbling or complaining is a consistent testimony before the world of the goodness of God. It's us making a sure case for the gospel. Blameless, he says. Blameless, that means beyond reproach. That means that there is, there would be no just cause of condemnation upon you. That the world would have no just cause to point their finger at you and say, look at how you are. If you trust God and you trust His goodness and you trust His sovereignty and you do all things without grumbling or complaining, then before the world there would be no just cause for condemnation. You'd be blameless. You'd be beyond reproach. Paul says you'd be innocent. That means you'd be pure. You'd be sincere. You'd be unmixed. That's not weird language for us, but it wouldn't have been for them. They would have, they would have understood innocent in, in terms of, of two things that they would have known well, where things are mixed in to, to dilute. One was wine. The, the choicest of wine had no water mixed in. But if you wanted to make it last, you'd add some, some water and it would, it would dilute the, the wine. That's not the choicest of wine. Then the other would be metallurgy, same language used for metallurgy, so that there's not other metals mixed in to what, what you may be fashioning. What he's saying is that before the... the the watching world, you would be beyond reproach, no just cause for condemnation. You would be innocent. You would be pure. You'd be sincere. You'd be unmixed. You'd be without blemish, Paul says. This is is so interesting to me. This is not the only place we've seen this language. We also saw this language earlier in Ephesians as we see how God has made us positionally before Him. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Verse 4, Even as He chose us uh, in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Ephesians 1, 3. Holy and blameless, without blemish. Same word. What Paul is telling the Ephesians is when you come to God in faith, before God, you're standing before Him. That's what I mean by uh, positionally. You are before God without blemish. Though you are sinful, because of Jesus, before God, you are treated as sinless, without blemish. Now, the same language is used 
not about how we are positionally before God, but how we live practically before the world. It, you, you, you put these things together and you say, God has, through His grace, by faith, made me blameless before Him, positionally. Therefore, now I live blameless practically. That's the point. What we are positionally, we are to live out practically so that we make a sure case for our God to the world because we live in a sinful context and God calls us to be different than them. Do all things without arguing or complaining, grumbling or complaining, that you may be innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of the crooked and a twisted generation. And for the Philippians in Philippi, it was a, it was a twisted and crooked generation. It was a twisted and crooked and sinful place. These are interesting words. This is a Greek word you know. Crooked. Skalios. Skalios. What word do we get from that? Scoliosis. A crooked spine. This, this generation is, is crooked. It's twisted. It's perverse. It's distorted. That's how it was in Philippi. I would argue... The only thing that's changed is it's gotten worse. And have we ever been more reminded that we live in a crooked and twisted generation, a perverse generation, a sinful context than we were this week? Where people want to fight for the right and the ability to freely, without punishment, at any time, take a human life. It's twisted. It's crooked. It's perverse. It's perverse sinful context we live in. It was sinful then, and it is sinful now. God's calling us to live differently than the world so that we become a shining community. A shining community among whom you shine as lights in the world. The world, twisted, crooked, perverse, sinful, dark. But you, child of God, you've been brought into the kingdom of light. And you live differently. You do all things without grumbling or complaining. You trust God and His goodness and His sovereignty in all things. And when you do, you will be different than the world. 
Light is essentially different in its nature than darkness. Right? There really isn't any two greater um, extremes than light and darkness. There's not two things that are as incompatible as light and darkness. They cannot exist together. The world is darkness. We are called to be light. We are called to be radically different than the world around us. It's crooked. It's twisted. It's perverse. It's dark. We are called. We are called to be different, to stand out, to be noticed as having a radically different nature. We are called to be blameless and pure, innocent, to have no just cause for condemnation. We are called, church, to be marked by holiness. Holiness. This this phrase, holiness, this idea of holiness, literally means uh, different. It means set apart. God is holy, meaning that He is different. He is set apart than all of creation. And His His nature is so radically different that He is totally different, radically different, completely set apart from everything else. He is holy. He is holy. And just as God set the sun and He set the moon and the stars in the expanse of the darkness, so we are to be set apart by our conduct in a dark world. Paul uses this illustration of shining and I I couldn't help but, but think back to the Exodus and to Moses coming off the mountain of God. God there delivering His word, His good, trustworthy law to Moses. And God in His grace, I mean, really coming there, tabernacling there with Him. But Moses, and being the, the sinful person that he is, is not able to look on the face of God and live. God is that radically holy. And so what does God do? God hides him in the rock and says, I'll pass by you. And you, you, can, you can see the, the train of my robe. And just that small glimpse of the holiness of God was enough to change the nature of the appearance of Moses. Moses came down from that encounter with the holy God. And what was different about him? His face was a shining light. So much so they had to put a veil over his face. This this is the, the picture, figuratively speaking, 
of what Paul means when he says that we are called to shine as lights in the world. That we come by faith, spiritually, into an encounter with God, with a holy God. And we come away different. Shining in the darkness. 1 John 1, 5-7, this is the message that we've learned from Him when we proclaim to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanse us, cleanses us from all sin. The church, corporately, the people of God, should be the source point of the exposure of sin in the world. That our righteous living, our seeking out holiness, our reflecting the holiness of God into a, a twisted and perverse, dark generation. We should be the point of exposure of the sin in the world, shining a light on sin. That we, by God's grace and His help through His Word, shine as lights, shine a light on the darkness calling the world out of darkness and in to light. Ephesians 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, who has, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were... Darkness. It's not you were in darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Total, radical change of nature. Therefore, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. One thing has changed. It ain't in secret anymore, is it? It's just flaunted before us. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christ will shine on you. It's a serious command to do all things without grumbling or complaining. It's a serious command. Because as we live that way, we make a sure case for the gospel in the midst of a sinful context as we shine the light of Christ as a shining community. And we do so with a suffering commitment. Verse 16, holding fast 
to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. That is is Paul saying, even if I am suffering for the sake of the gospel and for your sake, even to the point of death. I want to hold fast to the word of life. See, the the implication of this phrase, holding fast to the word of life, is that it will be hard to live as lights in the world, to do all things without grumbling and complaining, is difficult. It is hard work. You will suffer. You will. You will have a whole host of things to grumble and complain about. Don't do it. Don't do it. Trust God. Don't grumble and complain. Trust God. See, the, the, the weight of this text isn't that this is about having a happy life. The weight of this text is you're going to have a difficult life. And you're going to have to hold fast to the word of life. And you're going to have a lot to grumble about. You're going to have a lot to complain about. Because in this life, you will have trouble. But don't do it. For me, this is the picture of you or me floating alone in a rough sea. The waves are crashing. The wind is blowing. Salt water keeps filling your mouth and stinging your eyes. Darkness all around you. And surely, death has come. Except for one thing. Except for the life preserver you cling on to. You hold fast to it. Why? Because that is Life. That is life. No matter how bad it gets, you know you can't let go. Now this life preserver, it's not your conduct. This doesn't say hold fast to the acts of life. No, it says hold fast to the word of life. What's the word of life? The word of life is the gospel. The word of life is the gospel. What a great description of the gospel. The word of life. You, in your suffering, have a commitment to hold fast to the gospel. What does that mean? What does that look like? That means that you trust God. That you obey God and you leave the the consequences to Him. You trust His goodness. You trust His sovereignty. You trust that He has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You trust that you once were darkness, dead in your sin. But now you are light with the life of Christ. 
And no matter the circumstances, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter the suffering that comes, whether you are being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of another's faith, you hold fast to the gospel. And you do all things without grumbling or complaining. How do we do that? We do it through a secure contentment. Verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here we are back to joy. And no matter what happens, no matter the suffering, you can rejoice and be glad because you are secure and content with where God has you no matter the circumstances. Paul will go on later to say in Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what is the secret? The secret is I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So how do we live without grumbling or complaining? How do we stay without blemish? Without fault, how do we shine as stars? How do we hold fast in the face of suffering? How do we keep content in the loss of much? We do all of it through Jesus. We do all of it by considering Jesus. By having this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may become blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. And rejoice with you all. Likewise, also, you be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus. Father, would you, by your grace and your power, help us to do all things without grumbling or complaining. All things. So that we would be totally different 
totally different than the world around us, that we would shine like stars in the heaven, making a sure case for a good God, trusting you in every circumstance, being content, holding fast to the word of life. God, this, this is not possible without your help. This is not possible without your strength. This is not possible without the power of God and the Spirit's work in our life. Would you help us live this way? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.